Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 210th episode, and in this title, Class, Race, Sex, toward the middle years of the 60s new left, Marxism was in the ideological saddle as activist's systemic guide to radical analysis. Everywhere you looked, there was Marxism. It was the, the viewpoint that had so many answers. Left concepts elevated economics. Class was paramount. Imperialism was the reigning enemy. The plight of the ghettos, the sex life of teenagers, the ills of alcoholism, the roots of crime, all these and much, much more were all seen first and foremost through an economic lens. The astute activists informed way into these topics, or into pretty much anything else, was via class categories. Certainly folks considered gender, sex, race, and culture, but they saw these as secondarily important, or, in the technical terminology of the time, as part of the superstructure. Then along came Black Power, La Raza, the women's movement, and the gay and lesbian movements, fighting not only repressive systems in society, but also reactionary residues in the left, and working to put racism, sexism, and heterosexism on the left agenda. Highlight our facet of society in your thought and practice, these movements instructed, not as mere derivatives, not as mere superstructure, influenced but not influential, but as critical elements in their own right. Pay central attention to race, gender, and sexuality, not only because they profoundly impact people's lives, but also as strategic keys to system maintenance and transformation. Okay, jet forward a few decades to the amazing emergence of anti-globalization movements. Folks looked around, and even with those movements emerging, class was, truth to be told, compared to that earlier moment, relatively absent from the left's lexicon. Priority attention to the economy was not only diminished in left organizing, it was often even missing entirely. Lots of leftists even celebrated markets, once a despised part of society's problems. Innovative and insightful focus on class relations, class consciousness, class struggle, and class organization was relatively, comparatively, slight compared to many earlier times. And it had been for years. Race, gender, and sex were spotlighted. Jet forward again to now. The situation persists. What happened and what is to be done? Everyone realized that with race, gender, and sexuality added to the mix of progressive politics, many people came in who weren't explicitly high on class and anti-capitalism. Just as in labor movements, there are a great many who aren't focused on sexuality, gender, and race. But no one argued that that alone explained the decline of attention to class. After all, we should have been able to raise class consciousness for these constituencies, like we would want to raise gender, race, and sex role consciousness for labor-oriented groups, enlarging the perspective of each constituency rather than cutting back. So looking for a deeper answer, some people examined this history and said that blacks, Latinos, women, and gays somehow actively pushed class out of prominence. They replaced it with all this fragmenting social stuff, this analysis told us, and we have all paid the price. This view deduced that we must gear up to reverse the trend. We must put class back on the table. In fact, to properly highlight class, 
this perspective told us, we have to clear the table of exaggerated emphasis on peripheral and fragmenting concerns. This particular view took root in various progressive periodicals, books, and gatherings. Was it, is it, credible? According to this view, hard upon the period of economic prioritization in the mid-60s, attention to race, in particular a black power nationalist conceptualization, came along and started the process of elbowing class aside. Then came feminists, focusing on gender, more elbowing. Then the gay movements rose and fought, elbows flying. Given this picture, though, I wonder, why didn't the subsequent arrival of the women's movement elbow race, and not just class, off the agenda? And why didn't the arrival of queer activism elbow gender and race, and not just class, off the agenda? How come it is only class that succumbs to newly arriving prioritizations, as if the other three concerns constitute some kind of unholy alliance, when clearly they were and remain at times at odds with each other? If that doesn't raise any questions in your mind about the roots of the declining attention to class over the past few decades, go back and look at the rhetoric and literature of the identity politics movements. Were there components that largely ignored class, in some sense contributing to its diminishment? Sure there were. There's no sense denying it. But why would class, previously entrenched and with a much longer pedigree, and presumably so much more important in the eyes of its advocates, retreat so dramatically under such a spurious and weak assault? Moreover, consider that for every such new project trying to replace class, there were others that sought to add race or gender or sexuality, or all of them, to class and to one another, keeping class prominent and expanding rather than replacing left agendas. Yes, radical feminists argued the priority of gender and kinship, in much the same way as Marxists argued the priority of class and economics, so that their battle with Marxism was, in some sense, zero-sum. Again, there is no point denying it. But Marxist feminists, with a hyphen, argued the need to have two conceptual toolboxes and orientations, using each in turn as appropriate. And better still, socialist feminists, without a hyphen, saw the need to reinvent approaches to both class and gender, with each being newly informed by the other. Socialist feminists argued, that is, for building one new conceptual toolbox with both focuses prioritized simultaneously. And while there were no comparably revealing names, the same held regarding race and sexuality and their interfaces with class. Why, then, didn't the more insightful and innovative efforts, plus the attachment to class in the first place, keep class on the table? That is, if class and economics were riding relatively high in the saddle, and then along came efforts to put race, gender, and sex into our conceptual framework, with some elements arguing replacement, but others arguing addition, how comes 30 years later, by the new millennium, and right to the present, only the advocates of class had to argue that it needs to be put back on the table? And why did it fall off the table in the first place? I think this is an interesting question that some folks have come to the wrong conclusions about with potentially harmful results. Yes, non-Marxist-inspired movements fought to establish the priority importance of race, gender, and sexuality. But that was a needed step forward. 
Economism, arguing the a priori priority of economic relations and the superstructural subordination of kinship, cultural, sexual, and even power relations, was wrong and would still be wrong if revived today. So why did the tension to clash diminish instead of persisting alongside and increasingly entwined with other newly elevated priorities and conceptual insights? The first broad cause of the declining attention to class by the ideological left from 1967 on had two sides and has been widely understood. First, when it was in the saddle, Marxism was in many instances like radical feminism or narrow nationalism in trying to defend what we might call a monistic prioritization of a single side of life as paramount. Many of Marxism's advocates were wedded to this, if not always in word, certainly in most deeds. They believed it and fought for it on grounds of its validity, however wrongly. Such Marxists didn't say, as I believe they should have, these critics are correct in berating our economism. We have been right to be concerned about economics, but we have been wrong to think that culture, race, gender, sex, and so on are just derivative. We have to welcome the criticisms and incorporate the new insights. We need to expand our concepts, not only of the rest of society, but even of economics, seeing how the new understandings of the emanations of influences having to do with race and gender and sex affect even the nature of capitalist economic logic and relations. This was the mindset of, of the socialist feminists. It was an orientation that could have helped keep class in the movement's headlights, rather than it drifting to the periphery, or sometimes even out of view. Second, the reason this welcoming and innovative attitude wasn't adopted by all Marxists wasn't only due to a principled, if misguided, attachment to economism. It was also defensive, at least in part. That is, some men in the movement and some whites in the movement and some straights in the movement weren't eager to have the new approaches challenge many of their ways and beliefs, and yes, their advantages. So these two factors work together to pose the problem as class or race, class or gender, class or sex for these Marxists. But I don't find these two factors convincing as a full explanation of the drift away from attention to class. Yes, both these reasons were at work, but how strongly? I think a serious study would show that, in fact, most Marxists from the 1960s on were, with some hesitation, rather open to the idea that these other concerns had to be conceptually and programmatically prioritized, not just class. I never bought that the race, gender, and sex biases of class-focused movement activists, whether we are talking about their principled but wrong conceptual beliefs or their personal material and social interests, were strong enough to cause them to essentially leave the stage of social change, essentially running from the threat of race, gender, and sex activists, and thus reducing support for class politics by their absence, rather than say, Admit the importance of other focuses and struggle on. In fact, I think if we went back and tracked people's trajectories, we would find instead that a whole lot of these folks slowly but surely and often even quickly embraced race, gender, and sex politics, but also reduced their allegiances to class politics. It seems to me the two factors mentioned so far just do not explain that phenomenon sufficiently. So what else could be at work? I'm out on a lonely limb here, 
But I think the additional problem, which contributed to declining attention to class, was that Marxist-inspired movements advocating class were never very coherent in the first place. I think they drifted off the stage, at least to a degree, largely due to their own limited allegiances. What was the weakness of class-oriented leftism back during the 60s and later, and how did it contribute to the drift away from class politics? Well, it seems to me the old new left was very good on ownership relations. It militantly rejected private ownership of the means of production, and it understood the difference between owning capital and accumulating profits on the one hand, and owning only one's ability to do work and selling it for wages on the other hand. There were no significant confusions about any of those issues. But that was the extent of comprehension. Class meant ownership, and understanding class relations meant understanding the impact of ownership on motivations, power, and income. That was good, but it wasn't good enough. The problem was, and is, that there is another locus of class definition that was largely left out by having an exclusive prioritization of ownership relations. That is, people's relations to production per se, not just to ownership. If one set of non-capitalists has a relative monopoly on information relevant to workplace decision-making, on levers of economic power, on higher incomes, and on more status, and another set of non-capitalists essentially enacts instructions with little access to broader information, no access to levers of decision-making power, little status, and lower incomes. This is also a difference affecting motivations, incentives, life conditions, and life perspectives. It is a class division, that is, between what I call the coordinator class of empowered conceptual workers and the working class of more typical rote workers, whether skilled or not. It is not based on ownership and is in fact essentially invisible if the only concepts we use for discerning class differences are relations of ownership. So what does that have to do with diminishing attention to class? Had it not been for race, gender, and sex elbowing class off the stage, perhaps the Marxist movements would have got around to this broader conceptualization. But I think not. I think the answer is more or less the opposite, which is a big part of why class declined in visibility. Here's why. First, Marxist movements were profoundly and militantly anti-capitalist, of course. But at least operationally, and at the level of leadership and their conceptual framework, they were pro-coordinator class, not ultimately pro-working class. That is, the Marxist agenda of those times was to create a new economy without private ownership. Yes, but an economy in which folks with a relative monopoly on information and skills bearing on decision-making and on access to levers of decision-making power became the new ruling class, as in every country where Marxism has won. Second, something about the arrival of race, gender, and sex-oriented leftism meant that if class stayed on the table, awareness of the role of the coordinator class would come to the fore. And third, on average, not for every Marxist, of course, this greatly weakened the resolves of Marxists to stay focused on class, causing many to fight against the new orientations and others to align with them, but relatively few to try to keep class in focus along with race, gender, and sex. If that is true, this analysis would explain events nicely. But is there anything to it? What could it be 
about the arrival of race, gender, and sex focuses that would have caused people paying attention to class to see beyond ownership relations to the role of information, knowledge, and monopolies on decision-making tasks in the life of coordinators and workers. Movements against racism, sexism, and heterosexism all address themselves in considerable part to actual interpersonal social relationships between people. They look hard to find the hidden injuries of their oppressions that involve the detailed ways of relating, dismissing, and ruling one another among opposed groups. Imagine, if you will, that the 1960s movements that highlighted class had been enlarged by adding to the class focus attention to race, gender, and sex. If class was to continue being investigated and interrogated alongside these new focuses, in short order, the hidden injuries of class would surface. The methods of the newcomers, paying attention as they did to actual social interactions, to beliefs and relations, to aspirations, words and deeds, would have quickly brought to the table workers' antipathy toward lawyers, doctors, engineers, and of course managers. It would have led to exploration of this antipathy, revealing the basis of it in real and consistent structural economic relationships, that is, in class differences. It would have led to seeing that an economic program could oppose capital and advance either workers or coordinators, and it would therefore have led to a far more profound and needed critique of then-dominant Marxism than only that it was too narrow. Working people's views of their own situations would have been heard in a context informed by the women's movement, the anti-racist movement, and the gay movements, and the concepts emerging from those other views would have entered the debate and changed awareness. Ownership would not have disappeared as a concern, to be sure, but the question of who has economic power over daily life conditions would have come to the surface as well. The worker-capitalist interface would have stayed on the table but the worker-coordinator interface would have joined it there, as well as concerns about race and culture broadly, gender and sexuality. You can see how this would have happened organically, inevitably, I think, had all the old advocates of class welcomed the new ways of thinking and the new priorities of the social movements, and then begun to apply them to the economy as well. So there we have it, and what an irony. Yes, the racial and sexual biases of Marxism, whether honest intellectual errors or defenses of material and social advantages and prejudices, no doubt cause some of its members to resist new social movements and to even retire from the stage rather than persist in some new alliance that would keep class concerns prominent. But alone, at least to my eyes, this just doesn't explain the reality. For one, why did only class decline? Second, why didn't the add the new priorities to the old one mentality win out over the replace the old priorities with new ones mentality? And third, why did so many of the class-focused folks actually change to embracing race, gender, and sex politics, but dropping their old prioritization rather than adding to it, especially rather than expanding it? I believe that class focus then and earlier had a weak basis because the intellectual framework and practices that sustained it were not truly committed to unequivocally pro-working class agendas. And its advocates were highly attached to not revealing this fact, even to themselves, and not admitting their own class allegiances, 
that is, to a coordinator vision and practice with intellectuals in command. So what is a good way forward? In our society, community, cultural relations, gender and kinship relations, sexual relations, political power relations, and economic class relations quite evidently are each powerful determinants of people's life prospects. They each demarcate social groups with on average different circumstances, material and social interests, and prospects for becoming radicalized in various ways and situations. Moreover, each of these spheres of social involvement reproduce not only their own defining oppressive hierarchies, but due to having been molded by the other spheres of social involvement so powerfully, they contribute to all the defining oppressive hierarchies. To fully understand any aspect, economy, kinship, community, polity, as it operates in a particular society, requires concepts fully informed by lessons from examining the other aspects. Yes, we need to put class back on the activist agenda. We need class concepts organizing our perceptions and structuring our thoughts. We need class vision providing aspirations and orientation, and class strategy to guide our practical choices. But we also need gender, race, and sexual concepts, vision, and strategy, just as much and for the same reasons. We need a way to practice politics that respects the entwinement and the autonomy of the constituencies all these aspects of life define, and that gives each room to develop and nurture its own agendas, and which simultaneously breaks down the biases of each against real solidarity. If we go from having had class in the saddle of a one-horse show to having race, gender, and sex in three saddles of three horses running off and at odds with each other, and then back to the one-horse class myopia again, it will pile error upon error. Dump the horses entirely. Dump the either-or mentality about what is important in social life and strategy. Create a conceptual framework that in some total plays proper regard to all critical sides of social life, in particular to economics, polity, culture, and kinship. Create movements that combine the needed autonomy of issue-focused projects and movements that are needed for their constituencies to find their own agendas with the solidarity that is prerequisite for any one agenda to be fully informed by essential insights from all the others. Sure, these arguments involve more than two steps, but it isn't rocket science. It's as clear as the world around us, and it has been for decades now. And while we are at it, expand our class concepts to account for the three-class rather than two-class environment we operate within. A friend of mine told me one day of saying to his three-year-old child, you can do this or you can do that. Now let's get on with it. Which will it be? And the child said back, but daddy, I don't like either choice. Three-year-olds can manage this level of comprehension. We don't have to choose between class myopia and non-class myopia. Surely we can opt for something broader than these competing failed orientations. If we don't, we have only ourselves to blame. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.